This podcast is written and recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. The land upon which we live and work is stolen land, and the sovereignty of the Wurundjeri people was never ceded. We must act in solidarity with their fight for justice and that of all colonised peoples. Who's gonna take the rap? Who's gonna take the rap? Won't someone tell me please? I'm sick of hearing all this crap. Who's gonna take the rap? Who's gonna take the rap? Won't someone tell me please? I'm sick of hearing all this crap. Who's gonna take the rap? Welcome to MAP, a Melbourne anarchist podcast. MAP is a new fortnightly podcast of news and analysis from an anarchist perspective. Show notes for this episode can be found at melbourneanarchistpodcast.com. Please follow us on Twitter at melbapodcast. In today's episode, I'll be focusing a bit on the government's PATH program and also talking about the deflation of one scabby the rat. But first, let's start with recent news of interest. First up, Dutton. On Tuesday, July 18, the Prime Minister, Mr. Trumbull, oh, sorry, Turnbull, announced his big new plan to retain the support of Peter Dutton. The Turnbull government will create a brand new toy for the former Queensland police officer turned current immigration minister to play with, a Department of Home Affairs. The proposed Department of Home Affairs will be a super portfolio, one that merges the Department of Immigration and Border Protection with responsibility for the Australian Federal Police and ASIO. The current Department of Immigration and Border Protection is itself the product of a governmental merger. The former Australian Customs Service and the ever-disreputable Department of Immigration were merged to create the Australian Border Force, a veritable armed paramilitary that notoriously spends more money awarding itself medals than even the military does. As Minister for Immigration and Border Protection, Peter Dutton has been responsible for overseeing Australia's brutal system of offshore detention. Under Peter Dutton, more asylum seekers detained in these camps have been killed than resettled. I think it's worth dwelling on this. The Australian state maintains a brutal system of offshore detention camps. According to the UNHCR, the conditions in these camps amount to systematic violations of the Convention Against Torture. It's now been four years since more than 2,000 people were detained in these camps. And according to the Department of Immigration's own records, A critical incident is recorded in one of these camps almost every single day. The men, women and children detained in these camps have committed no crime, have faced no charges, and have no recourse to appeal or likelihood of release. Whilst Peter Dutton has been Immigration Minister, six people have died in immigration facilities under his control, and seven more people have died in circumstances that can be reasonably traced back to interaction with this immigration system. And what I mean by that is that it uh, basically people are killing themselves rather than be sent to the camps that Dutton operates. The fact that Peter Dutton presides over a brutal and deadly immigration system is hardly surprising. 
when Dutton entered Parliament in 2001, he indicated that his political priorities were attacking refugees and civil liberties. Let me read you an extract from his frankly bizarre maiden speech. And I quote, The silent majority are fed up with bodies like the Civil Liberties Council and the Refugee Action Collective, and certainly the dictatorship of the trade union movement. Australians are fed up with the Civil Liberties Council, otherwise known as the criminal lawyers' media operatives, who appear obsessed with the rights of criminals, yet do not utter a word of understanding or compassion for the victims of crime. I put on a bit of a stupid voice because it's an absolutely ridiculous quote in which the now immigration minister back in 2002, yes, did try and link refugees to crime. This disturbing, bitter and nasty little man, a person responsible for the ongoing torturous treatment of men, women and children on Nauru and Manus Island, now has a national police force and a spy agency at his disposal. At the same time that the government was announcing the creation of its new super agency for Peter Dutton to lord over, the Department of Immigration and Border Protection issued an interesting call for tenders. Uh, the following is according to the Canberra Times. The government has floated changes to its immigration system, and I quote, Immigration has briefed industry players in San Francisco, Singapore, and Bangalore, and has also invited artificial intelligence and robotics companies to help it design a new visa system in a bid to automate more assessments, potentially with AI. The Department of Immigration proposes letting private companies administer tests, detect fraud, and recommend decisions to grant or refuse visas. According to the Canberra Times, companies would run a digital service for visa applications that would automatically decide on an application's validity, generate and send any letters required advising applicants of a decision or a request for information or convey the department's reasoning. But it doesn't stop there. The Department of Immigration has also flagged the possibility of having some form of automated system that would detect fraud, assess character, and decide whether applications were genuine. Let's break down what this means. The government is proposing to outsource large parts of the traditional function of the immigration department to an automated system designed and operated by a private company. They're talking about an automated system that would recommend decisions, which, let's face it, is public service talk for, in all practical purposes, making the decisions involved. Uh, if you don't believe me, have a look at what currently happens with the tax office. Large parts of the tax office's debt collection function are outsourced to Serco, those delightful people with a wonderful track record in Australia's immigration system. And when employees of Serco recommend decisions to the ATO, these decisions are basically implemented. They're very rarely checked by someone who's actually directly employed by the agency. The Department of Immigration's proposal, uh, according to the tenders worth, what, $1.2 billion initially, would transfer billions of dollars of public money to the private sector, and they would be doing this in order to replace the jobs of large numbers of people uh, so that the government can have a computer system that can impersonally and automatically reject visa applications. What could possibly go wrong? I mean, it's not like in the past year we haven't seen the Centrelink robo-debt disaster. 
an automated debt collection program that Centrelink set up that generated tens of thousands of incorrect debt notices and unfairly, automatically, penalized, harassed, and tormented welfare claimants. And now they want to apply the same sort of logic to visa applications. Just wonderful. I hope you're enjoying this episode of MAP, a Melbourne anarchist podcast. I tried to launch this podcast last year, but after two episodes, the demands of work and study caught up with me. On this second attempt, I'd like to try and do things a little bit differently. My aim with this podcast has been to create a fortnightly uh, podcast of approximately 20 to 30 minutes that offers news and analysis from an anarchist perspective. This episode that you're listening to is entirely scripted, but in future I hope to break episodes up into approximately three or four segments that would include both scripted and unscripted conversational explorations of a topic. To do this, and in order to better maintain a fortnightly publishing schedule, I'd love to find some people to collaborate with. In particular, it'd be amazing to find one or two people who'd be interested in occasionally co-hosting an episode or discussing a particular subject area. If you're interested in collaborating on this project, either as an occasional co-host or behind the scenes, please don't hesitate to shoot me a message on Twitter. The MAP Twitter account is at MelbAPodcast. That is the at symbol M-E-L-B-A podcast. Okay, let's talk industrial news. Staff at the Bureau of Meteorology are planning three weeks of rolling work bans as part of an ongoing pay dispute. Like many other places in the public service, pay negotiations at the Bureau of Meteorology have dragged on for nearly three years, during which most staff have not had any form of pay increase. BOM management are pushing for further cuts to paying conditions, and according to the CPSU, the uh, management at BOM are in particular targeting shift allowances, remote localities allowances, and travel allowances. If you think this sounds like small potatoes, you have to remember that staff at the Bureau of Meteorology work at all hours, at all manner of locations, and in order to provide something approaching reliable weather forecasts. Under the planned industrial action, staff will launch unannounced work stoppages of up to three and a half hours, and staff who do live crosses to the media are being asked to read a prepared statement before every appearance. Striking staff, however, have committed to continue to provide critical services and severe weather warnings. Coles have announced that they have begun the process of bargaining for a new enterprise agreement. The last Coles agreement was challenged in the so-called Fair Work Commission uh, by Coles worker Duncan Hart in 2015 and another Coles worker Penny Vickers this year. Uh, both demonstrated that the sweetheart deal stitched up between the SDA and Coles left workers worse off financially than they would have been on the Retail Industry Award. Coles and their friends at the SDA are now negotiating a new agreement presumably with the, pa- uh, the plan of paying staff as little as legally possible once again. But this time, of course, there's a fly in the ointment. A new project, the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union, has begun challenging the position of the SDA in the retail and fast food sector. Retail and Fast Food Workers Union is currently not registered as an industrial organisation, but is pushing its way into the process by having hundreds of Coles workers appoint the group as their bargaining representative. 
Ironically, the bargaining representative provision of the Fair Work Act dates back to work choices, when Howard envisaged workers appointing their own lawyers or negotiators in order to, individually in order to weaken the position of unions in enterprise bargaining. A small number of left projects and others have since used this provision in order to, wait, in order to push their way into enterprise negotiations uh, that would otherwise simply have been between a big business and a yellow union. In slightly more silly news, it seems that the federal court really does not like Scabby the Rat. Scabby the Rat is a large inflatable rat that unions in Victoria have been rolling out to picket lines for the past year or so. Scabby has recently been deployed at the UGL SO picket in Longford. Maintenance workers at the SO facility have been locked out since June, whilst their employer tries to force them to accept a 15-30% to pay cut. The federal court yesterday, that is Friday the 21st of July, ordered the Australian Workers' Union to deflate and remove from the picket-slash-protest at or around the entrance of the Longford site the large inflatable rat known as Scabby, as well as signs that read, Don't be a Scabby the Rat, and they were also ordered to remove a sign uh, that named an employee of the day, uh, listing any workers who'd crossed the picket line. Disappointingly, as far as I've been able to find out uh, to date at the time of recording, the AWU intends to comply with these ridiculous orders. The fight over Scabby the Rat takes place in an industrial relations system in Australia that basically bans any form of industrial action that might in any way prove to be effective. The employer, ESSO, is trying to starve maintenance workers at the Longford plant into submission by locking them out whilst offering what are effectively their own jobs back through a new subsidiary at lower pay. The workers are holding out and refusing to accept this blatant blackmail. I've often said that the test of whether some form of protest is illegal in Australia is whether it works. The employer has objected to workers calling on others not to take their jobs and shaming those who do cross this picket line. And uh, the court and law uh, apparently agree with the employer that this is so massively illegal. For the first time in a long time, the ACTU is explicitly saying that the rules are stacked against workers. And it seems that they'll be pushing for a campaign to elect the Labor Party, surprise, surprise, in order to change the rules at the coming federal election. But of course, it was the Labor Party that gave us the Fair Work Act and the Fair Work Commission, which employers gleefully used to stomp on any form of effective industrial action. If workers are to start winning again in any industrial dispute, Orders like those of the federal court about Scabby the Rat need to be defied. The ACTU is talking about changing the rules, but in the long run, the thing that changes the rules is not the ALP. Our power as workers comes from the fact that we can act collectively and withhold our labour. When workers collectively withhold their labour, production grinds to a halt. If we are to change the rules, we need to rebuild this collective power and our power to take action collectively. This means organising to rebuild grassroots union structures in every workplace and making the case to every union member that unjust laws should and can 
be broken. For this reason, unions should not readily roll over every time there is a court order, and Scabby the Rat should not be removed and deflated. The government's so-called PATH program is being significantly expanded. PATH was a fresh new attack on unemployed workers announced in the 2016 federal budget. The acronym apparently stands for Prepare, Trial, Hire. Under the program, unemployed workers are placed in bullshit retail or food industry jobs for between 4 or 12 weeks, where they get to work for up to 50 hours a fortnight and receive the princely sum of $200. It works out as $4 an hour. Young people are being forced into so-called internships, where they get to pull coffees and wash dishes for $4 an hour. Or so we thought. You see, the federal government was not able to get the legislation enabling path through the Senate, but they decided to implement the program anyway. Because there was no enabling legislation, payments that are made through the PATH scheme count as employment income for both Centrelink and tax purposes. This means that people who've been forced into $4 an hour internships by Centrelink and Job Network are having their Centrelink payments cut back because of the $200 income they are recording. It's genius. Employers are making a killing out of the PATH scheme. The much-touted $4 an hour is actually paid by the government. Employers are being gifted a free worker as well as a $1,000 grant for the sheer expense they incur for having someone work for them for free. The PATH scheme is expanding. Some 10,000 positions will soon be advertised and a great many of those will be for the benefit of big chains such as Baker's Delight and Coffee Club. But hey, at least everyone's getting jobs, right? Wrong. As Mark DiStefano revealed in BuzzFeed, so far the PATH program has been an abysmal failure. According to the most recent information available from the government, which dates to April and so is probably massively out of date, 620 people commenced the program and 82 found ongoing work as a result. It's an amazing success rate of 13%. The PATH program will naturally fail like every other program that punishes unemployed people for being unemployed. The simple fact is there are approximately 11 people looking for work, either because they're unemployed or because they don't have enough hours, for every single position advertised in Australia. No amount of punishing people for being unemployed will change the simple fact that there are not enough jobs. In reality, capitalism requires a certain level of unemployment for smooth functioning. Unemployment ensures that there are cheap workers available to firms when they want to quickly expand production. The threat of unemployment holds wages down and disciplines workers who can be threatened with the misery of being unemployed if they act up. Welfare is an interesting topic to consider from an anarchist perspective. On the one hand, the government needs to pay some form of welfare for a whole variety of reasons that are beneficial to the bosses. 
unemployed workers need to be ready to work if they're to be useful as reserve labour. And some form of unemployment pay lessens the threat that would be posed by politicised and militant unemployed workers with nothing left to lose. But at the same time, the payment of welfare is a significant expense to the state, and unemployment has to be miserable if its threat is to be successful as a discipline to the rest of the workforce. At the same time, welfare is also the product of struggle. Workers have fought for and won various forms of unemployment insurance, pensions and other welfare, which has ameliorated the position of that unemployed segment of the working class. In really basic terms, a higher doll is both insurance against you or I losing our jobs, but it also improves the bargaining condition uh, sorry, it also improves our bargaining position for wages and conditions more generally. Welfare is a site of struggle. State and ruling class propaganda attacking welfare and the unemployed has to be understood in terms of unemployment's use to capitalism. If we understand something like PATH in terms of capitalism, we can see that A, it's an attack on unemployed workers, and as such, a particular attack on Indigenous Australians, women, new migrants and people with disabilities who make up a higher proportion of welfare claimants. But it's also an attack on the position of the whole working class. It's an attack on wages and employment security. For the people involved, $4 an hour has effectively become the new minimum wage. And it is, of course, also a direct subsidy to the businesses that exploit the people on this program, both in the form of the free labour that they're able to exploit and access to the state grants that they're given for the trouble of doing this. The PATH program and other attacks on unemployed workers are doubtless things that we'll be revisiting on this podcast. Now to wrap things up, let's talk about upcoming events. Yesterday, a white man was acquitted of the manslaughter of an Aboriginal teenager by an all-white jury in Kalgoorlie. The man, whose name is now being suppressed by the courts for his own safety, ran 14-year-old Elijah Doherty down with a four-wheel drive. At the time of his death, Doherty was riding for his life on a motorcycle that the white man claimed was stolen. Uh, the following is from Kalawalklist. Uh, in The Guardian. CCTV camera footage of the chase shows the motorcycle travelling at an average speed of 46 kilometres per hour, whilst the four-wheel drive was travelling at 67 kilometres per hour, gaining on the bike at a rate of 5.6 metres a second. According to a WA police crash reconstruction expert who examined the site several hours after the crash, he did not see signs of swerving or heavy braking. Despite this, Western Australian police did not charge the man involved with murder, but rather the lesser offence of manslaughter. And a jury, an all-white jury in Kalgoorlie, has now acquitted this individual of manslaughter, instead convicting him of the still lesser offence of dangerous driving. The murder of Elijah Doherty will at this rate effectively go unpunished, and his white murderer will likely be free within a year. Here in Melbourne, warriors of the Aboriginal resistance have called a rally demanding justice for Elijah Doherty next Friday, 
July the 28th at 4pm on the steps of Parliament House. There will doubtless be other events elsewhere in the country, and I'll put a link to the Facebook event up in the show notes, but I hope to see all listeners to this podcast in or near Melbourne, uh, who are in or near Melbourne at 4pm, Friday at Parliament House. The 6th or 7th, I can't remember, annual Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair will be held in August on Saturday the 12th at Brunswick Town Hall. Uh, The Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair, of course, features stalls laden with books and zines, but there's also a jam-packed program of workshops and public discussions. Practically every group in this city that's notionally anarchist, and plenty of those that aren't, drag out a stall for the book fair. Uh, The venue is Disability Accessible, and the Book Fair Organising Collective organise a childminding slash play space with at least one professional childminder available. If you're in Melbourne on Saturday the 12th of August, be sure to check out the Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair at Brunswick Town Hall on Sydney Road in Brunswick. If you have any upcoming events that you'd like to plug in the next edition of MAP, a Melbourne Anarchist podcast, please drop us a line at melbourneanarchistpodcast.com or on Twitter at melbapodcast. If you're organising an event, demonstration or other action, I'd love to get you on the show to talk about what you're organising and why it's important. Well, that's all for this episode. Thank you for tuning in to MAP, a Melbourne Anarchist podcast. Show notes, links and further information about all topics discussed in this episode will be available on the MAP website, that is melbourneanarchistpodcast.com. You can subscribe to MAP from our website. The RSS link is uh, at the top of melbourneanarchistpodcast.com and should work in all popular podcast apps. I've been your host, Kieran Bennett, and until next episode, keep up the fight.